Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we've been taking a short break from our study in the book of Judges, and we're going to take a little longer one. <laughs> so as I was going through and looking at the next number of weeks, we have a number of special services in there, and I didn't want to break it up, and so... Uh, we're going to actually hold that off until towards the end of May, um, but we will get back to that. Um, so I wanted to just, this, this message is, uh, is kind of a, a follow-up from the um, gospel conference that we had this past week, and I want to thank those of you who are able to be here. I know some of you were here every night and, and every service, and, and I appreciate your faithfulness. I know some of you weren't able to be. But uh, uh, thank you for the times you're able to be here. I also want to give you a thank you from the team. Um, Aaron Coffey wanted me to relay that to you, that they appreciate everything that this church did, um, and uh, financially and, and just in so many different ways. Even, you know, some of you stopping by to bring them donuts and things like that. They, they appreciated that. I think they got a lot of donuts. Now, I'm going to make a comment, some of you are going to suddenly do this, but I, I have to say, Nate and I have never gotten people bringing donuts to us. <laughs> and so I'm concerned about that. I don't want you to start because then, you know, we'll balloon up. But uh, I just thought I'd note that because they had more than one group bring them donuts. So just saying. Second Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I know some of you in here um, have had a family member pass away sometime in the last few years, and, um, and I've had the privilege of spending time with some of you as your loved one is on their deathbed. And it's, it's a devastating thing, but at times as a pastor, it also can be an exhilarating thing. I've had the, the privilege of being with a, when, when a sick individual is on their moments before death or days before death, sometimes weeks before death, and, and they have that, that attitude and many times they'll say this statement to me of, I'm, I'm ready to go. And sometimes it's that statement of, I'm ready to be done with this suffering and this pain, but I, I've, I've seen in some individuals, and you can clearly see it on their face, that resolve of saying, I'm ready to be with my Savior. When you see like that, how do those individuals act? What, what is the way that they carry themselves? What is it that they say to their family? What matters most in those final minutes of clear thought? What I have observed in those situations when a loved one is on death's door, that when they're truly ready to meet their Savior, their final moments are rarely about them. They turn their attention to their families and begin to ask questions like, uh, who, uh, will my family be cared for? If they're married, will my spouse be cared for? Um, do, do you understand how much I love you? Do you understand uh, how much you mean to me? And those type of conversations uh, I've heard happen. Second Timothy is, a, is an incredible book because Second Timothy is the final letter that Paul would write. And I believe Paul knew that he was not, he was not long on this earth. And so I, I often view this as Paul's deathbed conversation. Although he's not dying at the moment, he is on death row. 
And he knows that most likely he will never leave his imprisonment. And most likely this will be it. And so this is his last letter. And you have to understand that prior to uh, him writing 1 Timothy, he had, he had gone to Ephesus and he had established this church and then he left Timothy as the pastor. And he wrote 1 Timothy as a, as a, a, a kind of a, a letter to tell Timothy, here's how to run your church. Here's, here's the, how to get on the right path towards, towards a godly and, and productive and fruitful church. But Timothy is facing opposition. Timothy's facing trials and, and his heart is beginning to break and his heart is beginning to wear down. And he's, and he's getting to that, that point of, of hurting. And so when Paul comes to Timothy, you can see his heart coming out as, Timothy, this is my final words to you. We see his heart come out clearest in, in 2 Timothy chap, chapter 2 and verse 1, which we'll um, get to in a moment. But it, basically in that phrase that you see there, be strengthened. And the King James says, be strong. And that's really what Paul wants to say to Timothy throughout this whole book. And he knows this is probably his last letter. And he soon, whether it's days, weeks, or months, he soon is going to have to give his life for the cause of Christ. And effectively what he's doing is he's saying, Timothy, I'm passing the baton. It's time for you to take on. But Timothy, I don't want you to do it in weakness. He wants to give it to him in strength and he wants him to be strong because he knows the church needs a strong leader and he knows the church themselves needs to be strong. And he knows that Timothy has been hit with people who do not want what Timothy is doing and they don't like it. And Timothy's young and he's, and he's by nature a rather timid individual and so he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, be strong. Now, this letter here is written to Timothy, to the preacher, and so sometimes it's easy to dismiss it as irrelevant to you. And I want to challenge you not to think that way. Because Paul is writing to the pastor, but he's writing to the pastor because he knew the pastor was connected to his congregation, and he knew that his congregation was also struggling with being strong. And so this letter is not just to Timothy, it's to all of us. Because Paul understood that sometimes life can be challenging. And sometimes people don't like what you're doing. And Paul knew that in his own life. Look, if you will, at, at 1 Timothy. We'll get to the text in a moment. Look at 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Notice what he says there. He says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever had every single person in, in turn against you? And Paul comes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, you know, you know everyone turned their back on me. And Timothy was struggling with that, that heaviness of, of discouragement. And Paul knew that Timothy was facing these problems and he knew that he was facing these problems because of his relationship with Paul. Why do you think these people are abandoning Paul? They're abandoning Paul because to be with Paul means your life also in, is in danger. Because Paul's a prisoner. Paul is a, is a guy on death row and, and Paul's not someone you want to be connected with. And Paul continued to preach the Gospel and he wouldn't shut his mouth and finally it got him to trouble. Because of that, there was discouragement. And because of that, Paul knew that Timothy is tempted to be ashamed of him. Notice, if you will, again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
I just want you to notice a few things that Paul says to him. Look at verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He says, Timothy, I know you have genuine faith. Look at verse 7. He says, for God, gave, uh, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Timothy, God did not intend for you to be afraid. Verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings. He says to him there, don't be ashamed. If you look down in verse 12, he says, which, talking about the gospel, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Do you get the idea here that Paul understood there was a temptation on Timothy's part to be ashamed and to, to run? But even here as Paul is sitting in prison, and, and, and as I said, it could be just months before he is killed for his faith, he is confident and not ashamed. And I love that. And Look, if you will, at uh, the end of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just his last few verses here. Notice what he says in verse, starting in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Wow, that has to be, that has to be crushing for Paul. But I, I love what he goes on and he says in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me he says, God's with me. And Paul was able to stand with such conviction. And how could a man who's about to be killed have uh, such conviction? Really, it comes down to two things. Either he's absolutely crazy or he's right. And when he says, God is with me, he's right. And, and we see that throughout. Pastor Nate preached a message uh, a, few, uh, a few weeks ago when I was not able to preach and, uh, from Philippians. And he said, basically in that passage, it talks about where Paul says, uh, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And basically what Paul was saying to, to those around him, he said, go ahead and kill me because through my death I will glorify God. Through my life I will glorify God. No matter what happens to me, I will glorify God. But if I stay here... I'm going to serve him the best I can. That was Paul's life. Do you know people who talk like that today? There's anyone that you know who's that uh, sold out to the gospel that they say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But see here, Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy struggled with that kind of confidence. And so Paul's trying to encourage him. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. It could be a number of different reasons. It's you're discouraged because of a trial that's going on in your life. You're discouraged because of your own spiritual struggles. I mean, you maybe you, know, you were here all last week and you heard preaching every single day, yet you're still sitting there going, Man, yeah, but I'm still struggling with sin. And you're discouraged. You're discouraged because you look at the world around us and you see the oppression that's beginning to build upon, upon Christians. And that was Timothy. He was discouraged. You're here and you're living the best that you can for God, but there's so much against us as believers. And Paul is writing this to encourage you as well. So I want to take a few moments and look at this passage and understand uh, why um, God wanted this passage for us and encourage us to grow strong in God's grace. So if you will, follow along as I read the text, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses one 
to the beginning of verse 8. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us as we look into this text. God, I understand there's probably some here discouraged. They're discouraged in their walk with you. They failed. They're struggling. It's maybe not in a big way. They're doing their best, but they're tired. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen them. Lord, it is not by our strength that we continue. It's by yours. So I pray that you will help us to understand that and to continue to go forward as people who are broken, people who are, who are empty of our own strength, people who are incapable of doing this on our own, and that we will thrive and survive in yours. Lord, I just pray it'll help us to understand this. Give me strength as I preach. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at two things, and you have your notes. Um, you can take those and uh, follow along. First of all, I want you to notice three instructions that were given for a God-pleasing life. Three instructions that were given in a God-pleasing life. The first one we see there is be strong in God's grace. Notice, if you will, in the passage, he says, you then. Again, this is a reference back in the King James, this is therefore, and those are always reference words back to the previous uh, verses. And, and he's going back to the fact that you know, there is the, the desire for many to be ashamed, the desire for many to abandon Paul, and Paul says many have abandoned Paul. And he says then to Timothy, you therefore then, this is what I want you to do. And he says what? Be strong. And it's interesting, the, the phrase there, be strengthened, and uh, uh, the, in the original, as I've said before, um, I grew up in an uh, English teacher's home. Now that may be not reflected in the way I speak all the time, but I did. It was a home where I was constantly being told by my mom what I said wrong. So... Um, I'm used to it when people tell me I say things wrong. But, uh, so she taught me the importance of different things and, and the tenses that are used. Well, in the Greek, tenses often, the tense often indicates something about it. And so this be strengthened was a, is in a passive, present passive. What does that mean? That means it's translated this way. When it says be strengthened, it's translated keep on being empowered. And the idea of passive, it's not something you do. Active would be something you do, but passive is that. You understand that if you have a teenager, okay? Your teenager sits and watches TV. They are passive. They are not doing anything. And the idea of this passage is it's really beyond our understanding sometimes because he's saying be strengthened, but it's not you that's doing that. It's calling upon God. So he's saying there, be in a position to be empowered by God. And how do we do that? We do that by putting sin of our life, drawing closer to God, and as we draw closer to God, He'll empower you. So the exhortation there is to continue to draw on the available spiritual power provided by God and God alone. But notice what he says in that passage. He goes on and he says, be strengthened. How? 
by the grace of God. Since you have been united in Christ, since you have become a Christian, you are in the sphere of grace. And that grace empowers you. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 8 says, for, we are, uh, for by grace you have been saved. And we understand the idea of saving grace. I appreciated um, the songs that uh, Pastor Nate chose today. They go very well with my message. And, and as we were singing through the first song in the worship folder, if you have it, look at it. It's the song, Complete in Thee. If you don't know the history of this song, this song was actually, the words were uh, written um, uh, down at the bottom, it tells you there, written um, about 200 years ago, um, a little less than that. Uh, it's an old text, but it's a very powerful text. If you notice in, in the first verse, it says, complete in thee. The idea of that is, is that uh, when we are in Christ, we need nothing for salvation other than Jesus Christ. It says there in that first verse, complete in thee no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Nothing that you and I do is ever going to take, place, take the place of what Jesus Christ did in the cross. No work that I ever do will ever accomplish anything. It's only by the grace of God. I love the last verse. If you will look there, it says in verse 4, Dear Savior, when before thy bar... The idea of that is, is it's, it's when, when Jesus Christ comes back and He takes us to heaven and we stand there and the Bible tells us that we will stand uh, before the judgment of Christ. And this is not a judgment because of the sins we've done. This is a judgment of uh, how, how, our, how we glorified God through the work that we did for Him. And we stand there and the Bible tells us, as you see in this passage, it reflects that in this song. It says, all tribes and tongues. And I, I imagine, if you will, this, this massive assembly and there are people from every walk of life, from every corner of the globe, every language, every, every nation, every culture, everything. And we're all gathered together before God. Notice what it says in that passage. We're all assembled and among them, among thy chosen, I will be. As I sang that verse, it, just, it was an amazing thought that there will be all these people and I'm there, not because of anything I have done, but because God chose me. That's grace. And that's what it talks about in Ephesians when it says, for by grace you saved. Grace is undeserved. Salvation that comes by grace is apart from any merit, any earning, any deserving that you have ever done. But when you were saved by grace, grace didn't stop. And I think a lot of times that's what we say, yeah, I was saved by grace, but no, it didn't stop. You live as a believer in the sphere of grace. That's why, uh, oh, excuse me, I didn't, uh, there we go, that's why I wanted was here. Sorry, I skipped that verse. First John 1 John 1.9, that's why it says in that passage, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God uh, saves us, and because He saves us, He then continues to forgive us, and that's by the grace of God. And the grace of God operates in two ways. First of all, there's a grace of forgiveness. And God forgives you, not only to the point of salvation, but each and every day, as this passage says, as I come and I confess my sins to God, He forgives us, not because we're worthy of it, but because of His grace. But grace is also available for power. It is God's undeserved unmerited grace that grants you the power to serve Him. We see in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, it says in that passage, through Him we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. Notice I highlighted that phrase, into this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? It means we're fixed in it. When you become a child of God, you are fixed in His grace, and we exist in an atmosphere of grace. And it is God's unmerited, undeserved assistance that helps you to serve that helps you to to live for Him each and every day, that helps you to step out of your house in the morning and live that day to the glory of God. It is God's unmerited grace, undeserved assistance. So I live in a sphere of grace. I don't deserve to be forgiven, yet I am. I don't deserve to be used by God, yet I am. I don't deserve to live with the possibility of, uh, of pleasing Him, yet at times I do. In my own strength, I can offer nothing to God. In my own strength, I can do nothing that pleases God. So it is grace that forgives me, but it's also grace that empowers me. This past uh, couple weeks, uh, Pastor Nate and I have been talking about um, how evaluating our, uh, our relationship and evaluating... Um, how we complement each other, but also at the same time um, where, as a team, we have, still have weaknesses. And so um, Pastor Nate had me take this uh, personality test. I hate those things, but it was good. Um, but I, I struggled with it because, you know, it was one of those where you have the scenarios, you know, are you this, are you that, are you this, are you that? And as I was going through that, I told Pastor Nate I struggled to take it because what I found was is, that my nature and what God has, has, has empowered me to do as a pastor are two different things. And, and it kind of struck me. And I'll just give you a one example by that. Um, and as we went through and it gave us the results, it came to the conclusion that, um, I, and this is going to be a surprise to some of you, but not to some of you others, by nature I'm an introvert. I'm the type that would rather just kind of be by myself quiet, not say a whole lot, not talk to a whole lot of people. By nature, that's what I do. Well, that's not my job. <laughs> so how is it possible that, that I have been able to get out of my nature? I, I'll be completely honest with you. It has nothing to do with me. It is, it is the grace of God that empowers me each and every day. You say, how can I possibly please God? It has nothing to do with you. It's the grace of God that empowers us. And that is what he is saying in this passage. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, be strong. Not in your own strength, because Timothy, you're a timid man, and you're not going to be able to do that. And you're going to fall, and you're going to falter every single day. But be strong in God's grace. Go to God and say, God, strengthen me today, because I can't do it. And the same God that gave me grace and offered me salvation is the same God that's going to empower me to do those things that I can't do and to do those things that you can't do. And he says to them, be strong in God's grace. But secondly, I want you to notice, sorry, I was behind there again. He says, be serious about discipleship. Notice, if you will, in verse 2, he says, okay, I want you to be strengthened, but Timothy, i got another thing for you. He says, what you have heard from me, all those things that I have taught you, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In the power and the grace of God, what he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, see yourself as a teacher. 
The teacher is that living link in the chain that goes all the way back to Jesus. And and Jesus taught His twelve disciples. And those disciples taught men. And those men taught men and women. And those men taught men and women. And, And the chain goes on and on and on until one day someone taught me and then I teach someone else. And you know what? One day someone taught you and it is your responsibility to teach someone else. Um, my family knows this, but my favorite sporting event to watch is the, is the Olympics. I don't know. Maybe it's the Patriot in me. I don't know what it is, but I love watching the Olympics. I'll watch events in the Olympics that I, that I would not watch any other time of year. If I turn on the television during the Olympics and there's you know, some weird sport that never is on TV, I think it's cool just because there's an American in it. I love watching track and field and watching those runners and and uh, one of my favorite events is watching those relays. You know those relays where they, they have to pass the baton on? I remember back in 2004, the Olympics was in Athens. I don't know if you remember that. And it came to the, what, was, what is the 4 by 100 women's relay. Now, our, our men always do well in this event, but our women dominate that event. Uh, we, and we came into this event and we had uh, one of the best relay teams we'd ever had. It was, it was filled with world record holders. It was filled with gold medalists. I mean, it was filled with the top of the top. And, and they started the race and it's just 100 meters for, for each one. And the first one went and they, got, they stayed level with the Jamaican team, which is always usually our greatest competitor. And they stayed level. And the second person, they handed off to the second person who's a woman by the name of Marion Jones. Marion Jones won many gold medals, uh, extremely fast woman, and, and Marion Jones took off, and within seconds she had built already a huge lead from the person behind her. And they get to the next person, and they hand off the baton, and for whatever reason, they, they fumbled the baton, and it fell to the ground. And the, the other teams flew right by them, and the U.S. was disqualified and did not finish the race. You know, that, I believe, is happening when we do not carry on the process of carrying the gospel to the next generation. If you notice in this passage, he says in verse 2, he says that you've received this, and then he says to, to Timothy, entrust it to faithful men. That word entrust is an interesting word, and the idea of entrust is there, is to deposit for safekeeping. And what he's saying in that passage, he's saying, Timothy, I have given to you the Gospel. I have given to you this teaching. And now your responsibility is to entrust it to someone else. And if you don't do that, you're missing out. If you don't do that, you're disobeying God's command. In other words, he's saying this, it cannot stop with you. It must go on. We use a word to describe this, a word we call discipleship. Discipleship is seen throughout the New Testament. The last thing that Jesus said to His disciples as He went up to heaven is this. He said, go and make disciples. This is one of the greatest tasks that God has given, and I believe this is one of the most neglected tasks among Christians today. It's not reserved just for pastors or deacons. It's not just about inviting people to church. Discipleship is serious, intentional dialogue with those in your life about the, about the Scriptures. 
Parents, teach your kids not just how to make money or how to survive in the world, but teach them what it means to, to, to live through the power of God and, and grace. Teach them. Every person in this room, every single individual in this room should be discipling. Because if you have been given the, the gospel, if you've been given the good news, then, then your responsibility, if you are here today and you're a believer, your responsibility, what it, that word is saying is, Paul, Paul is saying to Timothy, I entrusted it to you, not just to hang on to it and hide it away. He said, I entrusted it to you so that you can deposit it to someone else so that they can deposit it to the next person so that the gospel will be safe and continue to go on. And I want you to think about it in your life. Who are you intentionally teaching? Who? Maybe it's a maybe as a parent it's your kids. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend. But who? Discipleship looks different for everyone. It's maybe not the same for me as it is for you. I spend time with people in my office in, in, in active discipleship, but you know, that might not be you. But the idea is, is that you are not allowing your faith to stop with you, that you are intentionally carrying it on. And if you said, when I asked the question, who are you intentionally teaching, if your answer is no one, then you know what? You're dropping the baton. And worse, you're not depositing the gospel for safekeeping. And you're opening it up to the enemy. And Paul says to Timothy here, Timothy, you need to, in the, through the strength of God and the grace of God, you need to then take that gospel and you need to entrust it to faithful men. And if you do the job that is, you're supposed to, then hopefully the, the idea is that they will entrust it to faithful men. Are we doing that? He says, Timothy, you need to be serious about discipleship. But thirdly, you need to be sure of suffering. This past week, I, I don't remember what evening, but one of the nights, uh, Aaron Coffey talked about the fact is that as Christians, we are going to face suffering. And, it, and it's, a, it's, it, it's, a, it's a privilege. Pastor Nate talked about it in the singing as well. Too often, though, as believers, we want to blend in the world and do anything we can to avoid ripples in the sea in the world. The Bible and the Gospel, the Bible uh, and, and the Word of Jesus Christ, the Gospel that says that every single person on earth is doomed to hell without Jesus Christ, that's offensive. And when we begin to say that, it's offensive. Now I want to pause and say your personality shouldn't be offensive. We can share the Gospel which is offensive without us personally be offensive. But if you're living this life by God's power and by God's grace and teaching and discipling others, you are going to offend. And, and we understand that. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Carrying, uh, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What he's saying in that passage is very clear. He's saying, you know what? We may be afflicted. We may be crushed. We may be persecuted. We may be struck down. But if we're doing it for the cause of Christ, then it's something in which we should rejoice. 
Because the reason that we're doing that is so that through our life we may uh, reveal Christ to others. We need to be sure of suffering. If you look in that passage in verse uh, 3, it says share in the suffering. Then we go on and we see that not only did he give three instructions, but he gave three illustrations of a God-pleasing life. First one we want to notice is the soldiers are loyal in the suffering service. Paul gives us three visual illustrations of what it looks like to live a pleasing life. These, these illustrations are not one of these deals. You, you don't go and look and say, okay, which one do I want to choose? I'll choose that one. No, these are all to reflect us. Every one of them. And each of them are in there for a unique reason. And each of them point to something unique that God wants us to see. And the first one here, soldiers are, are loyal in the suffering service. And the first thing we need to acknowledge is the fact that we are soldiers, which means we're acknowledging the fact that we're in war. I want you to be careful there because we're not in war against uh, the sinner who lives next door to you. We're not in war against your, you know, your parents who are unsaved. You're not in war against your kids. You're, you're in war against Satan and, and the philosophies that Satan has brought into this world. We're in war. And some of you are, have, have, are older than I am and some of you have been around for a long time and you've seen our country endure wars and and uh, you've seen our country endure some where we as a nation had to be very uh, vigilant about how we responded. And some of you have actually fought in battle, and you know what that's like. And we're, we're at war here. We're not at war against politicians. We're not at war against, uh, against people. We're at war against Satan. And here in this passage it says we need to be a good, uh, a good soldier. And it gives us four de- descriptions of this soldier. And I mentioned the first one. We need to be a good, good soldier. In verse 3 it says, Suffer, share in the sufferings as a good soldier. And that's not just any soldier. It's a good soldier. And what does that mean? That word means this. It means noble and excellent. We're not just dutiful soldiers. We're not just the soldiers that do our job and get done with it. No, we're excellent soldiers. We're not just functioning soldiers. We're not just soldiers that show up and you know, do a little bit here and there. No, we're soldiers that are noble about how we do it. We're soldiers that are rewarded because of how well we serve. We're soldiers that are, are receive the, you know, the purple hearts. We're soldiers that get the, the medals of valor because we're serious about what we do. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, don't just be a soldier. He says, be a good soldier. But the second thing we notice, he says, be an active soldier. The word soldier that's listed in verse 4 implies an active soldier. In in God's army, there's no people on R&R. There's no people untrained, uninvolved, unlisted, undrafted. We are all active in God's army. We're all together. And I believe it even goes a step beyond that. And it's the idea that we're all on the front lines. There's no one that's, that's uh, back at base. We're all fighting. We're in this together. The Greek word that we see in verse 4 that says soldier is a word that means that we suffer together with everyone else. The problem is, is that many times our desire is to avoid conflict at all costs. And here it says that we're to take our fair share of difficulties just like the other soldiers on the front line. 
Now, maybe some, because of their position, uh, face it more than others. But yet, our responsibility is to do that. And too often, we want to be unengaged in the fight instead of a God-pleasing life means that we're on the front lines. He says we're to be a good soldier, we're to be an active soldier, but we're to also be an untangled soldier. If you look at the passage, he says, no soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits. That word entangled means interweaved. The word civilian there is the idea of the pragmatics of life or, or the simple stuff of life, the basics of life. And, and uh, so what he's saying here, he's not talking about not being entangled with the sin of life. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about let's not our, allow ourselves to be so entangled with our existence and our basic stuff of existence that we forget that we're soldiers. You know, some people's lives are so wrapped up in trivial And I'm not saying that we cannot ever do something other than sit there and read our Bible. And sometimes we are involved in those trivial, but it cannot be the the stuff that makes up our life. You know, I will go home this afternoon, and some of you will go home and take a nap, and I may as well, but I'll probably go home this afternoon at some point, turn on the television to watch a little basketball with my son. And it's something I'll enjoy doing. But I want you to understand it's not something that that entangles my life. And he's saying here in this passage, he's saying as a soldier, we cannot be wrapped up in in the trivial matters of life uh, so that it consumes us. And what he's saying is it's like a soldier on the front lines in the midst of battle playing games with the other soldiers. We live on a battlefront that demands that we're disengaged from the stuff of life. The fourth aspect of the soldier, he says that the soldier is to be a pleasing soldier. If you notice at the end of that verse, what does it say? It says uh, he, he doesn't get, allow himself to be entangled. We can't allow ourselves to be entangled with the stuff of life. Why? Since our aim is to please the one who enlisted us. Our aim is this. Our aim as a soldier is that that we please our commander-in-chief. We do that by pleasing our Lord. Christ was a great example of this when He came to earth. And and what what did God say about Him? He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the greatest joy that a soldier can have is when he stands before his commander-in-chief and his commander hands him an award and says, Well done, thou good and faithful soldier. We live for that pleasing God. And see, we're to be soldiers, but secondly, we're to be uh, athletes who win. Uh, And athletes who win compete by the rules. I think I would have gotten along with Paul very well because Paul uh, refers to athletics many times and I think we would have enjoyed athletics together. You see throughout his epistles, he does that. In Ephesians, he talks about wrestlers when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And in 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, boxing when he says that you beat against the air and he talks about runners. And, uh, but here he talks about an athlete in a generic sense. And if you look in that passage, he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And He's just talking about a general athlete, and he's saying about an athlete that uh, he competes. 
And he works hard. And and the word that's used here for compete is the idea of competing in a contest. And the idea there is that we do that why? To, To win a prize. When we think of athletics, we often think of discipline because discipline is, is very connected to athletics. And, and so we're to be, he's saying here we're to be disciplined. And what does that discipline look like? Three things. First of all, we're to, be, we're to discipline ourselves in effort. What separates a winner from a loser is not always talent, but often it's effort. And it's not just the effort during the event. It's not just, you know, a basketball player doesn't just show up for a game and, and play and, and have success. No, it's the effort beforehand. It's the, it's the working the long, hard hours that no one ever sees and, and preparing themselves for that event. And he's saying if anyone is going to compete as an athlete, there's a tremendous price to be paid in the area of discipline. And think of it this way. Our church has a softball team, which I'm assuming will be starting practice soon. Uh, Mark Lance is the coach. and um, I've played in it in the past. I haven't played it in recent years, but I've played it in the past. And I, I love church softball, and here's why I love church softball. It takes no preparation. Okay? Um, and I, I remember in the past, you know, M- Mark would say, hey, we got our first practice coming up. And I'd be like, It's softball! I don't need to practice. Sorry, if we're having a practice soon, show up to the practice. It's a great idea. I won't be there. But, um, you know, we, you just show up. And I, I remember I'd show up and be like, oh, we got a game next week. Um, man, I haven't seen my glove in a year. Where's that at? Find it in a box. I pull it out. We get to the game. I haven't thrown a ball in a year. And we go and, and someone hands me a ball. I'm like, okay, let's go play. You know, we grab a, I pick up a bat and I take one practice swing. Okay, I'm ready to bat. There's no practice involved. Now compare that if you were to be a professional baseball player. How far would they get in their career? But I think the problem is is that many times we give the effort of a church softball team in our Christian walk. I think, oh, you know what, I, I I can just show up and I'll be okay. No, no, the idea is we need to be disciplined in our effort. We need to work hard. We need to, uh, we need to uh, be disciplined. And how, how, what does that mean? That means spending time in the Word of God. That means having a right relationship with God. That means doing our, our best to serve Him in a way that uh, pleases Him. And it's discipline. And Paul is saying that you know, we need to, through the strength of God, and through the power of God, and through the grace of God, we need to work hard. But we need to be disciplined not only in our effort, but also in our motivation. An athlete competes, why? To win a prize. And as a believer, we need to be motivated to finish the race that is pleasing to God. A professional athlete may love hearing the crowd around them, and it maybe even energizes him. That's why most teams do better at home than they do away, because the crowd energizes them, but that's not the uh, motivation that gets most athletes to compete the best they can. That's not the motivation that causes them to go to practice and work hard. It's not the motivation that causes them to work in the off-season and train and lift and, and do all the things necessary. No, what motivates them is that prize. Now, for some, it might be the paycheck. For some, it might be something else, but it, they're motivated by that. But we do not serve God because of those watching around us. We serve God because we're motivated by the, the fact that one day we will stand, as I talked about a few moments ago, we'll stand before that bar that judges stand and God will look and He'll say, you served me, here is your prize. 
And I don't think it's even the prize because we'll take that prize and we'll say, we appreciate the prize, but it was all for you. And an athlete is motivated by, uh, by what they are going to receive and we're motivated by our relationship with God and the prize we'll receive and we need to be disciplined in that. And so because we're disciplined in effort and we're disciplined in motivation, we need to be disciplined in, in how we look at the rules. Because if we're going to win a prize, we have to keep the rules. What does he mean by this? This goes beyond just keeping the rules of the event. You have to understand during the time when Paul was writing, he was writing to an area that had understood greatly the idea of the Greek games. There was a number of games. Today we have the Olympic games, but they had a number. They had Greek games, Olympian games, Athenian games. They had a number of different games that were done. And, and whatever they were, all these Greek games had three rules that were required for the athlete. Number one, the athlete, in order to compete in this, had to be a true-born Greek. Couldn't be any other nationality. Number two, he had to prepare for 10 months. And for 10 months, that was their training time. For 10 months, they had to prepare. And for them, it was, it was intense hours and lots of hard training. And they would train. And at the end of 10 months, they would go and they would stand before one of the Greek gods, Zeus. And they'd stand before the statue of Zeus and they would have to swear that they had pre- prepared for 10 months. And by doing that, what they were saying is, Zeus, if I haven't prepared for ten months, then you have the liberty to take my life. And of course, we know that that's, uh, Zeus is not real, so that didn't happen, but that is what they had to do. The third rule was they had to keep the rules of the event. So if a person was found not to be a true-born Greek, if he was found that he had not prepared for ten months, if he was found that he violated any rule of the event, whatever that event was, then he was disgraced as an individual, and he was disqualified immediately. The picture here is clear. What he's saying to us is this. The strong believer must be, first of all, uh, a a child of God, but he must train himself in self-denial, and he must be given over to training, and he must be eager to compete. And when he competes, he must do so in a way that is pleasing to God. But what he tells us then is this, is when we do those things, we're going to be a disciplined competitor and we're going to be victorious. Because the victory belongs to the disciplined. And the discipline is a mark of spiritual maturity. If you lack discipline, then you are not spiritually mature. A disciplined person has control over their life and over their sins and over their emotions. He tells them to be an athlete. The third one and final one, and we'll go through this one here briefly, is the farmer that the farmers work hard to reap the reward. We see in that passage then in verse 6, he said, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Uh, we are to be like farmers, but he throws an interesting adjective in front of the, the word farmer, and that is hardworking And what that word means is this, is that we are to work to the point of exhaustion, to wear ourselves out, to sweat, to strain. Now I think it's interesting because all of these three are hardworking. All of these three have value, but the farmer is a little different than the other two. And let let me tell you why. 
soldier has the thrill, if he does what God wants him to do, he's going to receive victory and he's going to receive honor and he's going to receive glory. The athlete, if he does what he's supposed to do and he abides by the rule, he's going to receive victory and he's going to receive the reward. But here he pictures a, a, a farmer. And a farmer works to the point of total exhaustion and perpetual ho-hum duty. Like, uh, unlike a soldier, he, he will never wear a badge of courage. Unlike an athlete, he will never receive a crown on his head or the praise of men. The farmer, he plows and he sows and he tends and he reaps. Early in the morning to late at night, he fights the frost, he fights the heat, he fights too much water, he fights not enough water, he fights bugs, he fights exhaustion, he fights weeds, and he continues to fight and fight and fight. And patiently he works, and patiently he does this all by himself with not a person around him and not a crowd at all. There's no great excitement for a farmer. There's no great thrill. It's perpetual humdrum routine, duty. And sometimes, you know, it's easy uh, in our mind to grasp the idea of a soldier, a guy who's going to fight and get the victory, and, and they come back into the victory uh, to the home, and everyone praises them, and everyone exalts them, and they get a pin placed on them for being honoring. We think of the athlete who, you know, they win and they get the. Uh, the victory parade, and they, and they do all these things and they receive the reward, but a farmer gets no praise. Sometimes that's the Christian life, and that's what Paul is trying to say to Timothy. He's saying you need to be strong. You need to reproduce in the next generation. You need to uh, face suffering, and you're going to do it as a soldier, and you're going to do it as an athlete, but man, you need to do it as a farmer. You need to prod along and do the things God wants you to do. But why does he do it? Why does a farmer put in hours upon hours upon hours of unnoticed work? Because he wants to be the first to receive the share of the crops. You notice in that passage he says, because he ought to be the first share of the crops. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, uh, look, the guy who works the hardest gets in line first for the fruit. The guy who puts in the effort, uh, why does he do that? You know, we often say, God, I, I want the blessing. And, uh, you know, a farmer understands the idea that the blessing does not come until we work hard. And many Christians, they desire that blessing and they wait for that blessing and, and you want to receive that blessing. And you're saying, God, you know, I've, I've labored in this. And I, I, I hear stories of, of missionaries who go to the mission field. And I think of a guy, I, I uh, read his biography on numerous occasions by the name of William Carey, who, who went to the mission field and for years proclaimed the gospel. Never in all those years did he receive a, see a, someone come to Christ until the very end. Can you imagine that type of labor, that type of work, that type of effort? As a Christian, we need to be willing to do that. Work hard at what we do. Be diligent. I would say that very few people know what it is like to literally exhaust themselves in the work of the kingdom. To run yourself so ragged for the cause of Christ. And as a result, few people will share in the great fruitfulness that the Lord wants to give.
And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, maybe no one's going to see aspects of what you do, but work hard. Do what you do. And then you'll see the fruit. And then he closes this passage, and I'll share this in closing. Look, if you will, back in the passage in verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's saying, Paul's saying, Timothy, think about what I just said and contemplate it. And then he says just an amazing thought, and he, verses 8 through 13 talk about this, but I just want to look at verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel. What is Paul reminding? He's saying, to, he's saying here to Timothy, Timothy, I know that at times being that soldier is going to hurt and, and be hard. I know at times being that athlete, man, takes discipline. At times being that farmer is hard, hard work. But he's saying through all that, remember Christ Jesus. Why do we do what we do? Because of Christ. And I challenge you as you go through your Christian life, as I said at the very beginning, maybe you're here and you're discouraged. You're facing that discouragement of, I just am ready to give up. And you need to take to heart what Paul said to Timothy, and that is, be strengthened in the grace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessing we have of serving you. Lord, and there is no indication in Scripture that serving you is going to be a cakewalk. There's no indication that it's going to be this easy path through life. In fact, your word tells us that, that wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow and hard is the way that leads to life everlasting. That as we go through our life, the difficult path that we're going to take is the one that is following you. Lord, I know that as, as I face all the time, there's days and there's times and there's moments where we go through discouragement, Lord, where we've tried, we're trying to please you and we fail. We're trying to do the right thing and we just, we don't know how to anymore. God, I pray that you will strengthen those in here that are facing that. Or that you will help them to not just pursue it in their own power, but they will rely on the grace of God, the same grace that saved them. God, I pray that you'll help us to be a church who is, is disciplined, hardworking, and dedicated to the cause of Christ. We thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Nate.